Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. We're looking at financials today, posing the question how banks and asset managers are navigating through the current market environment. Also, where are the immediate and long-term investment opportunities across financials in North America? Analyst and portfolio manager Matt Edgerton joins us to discuss the latest on the financial sector and to share his equity research findings. This podcast was recorded on August 25th, 2022, and was initially presented as a live webcast, with Matt also sharing some perspectives on the U.S. Federal Reserve and Jackson Hole Summit that was taking place at the time. And one more note before we get started, if you're looking for more market insights, circle Thursday, September 8th on your calendar. Fidelity's Vivian Su, Director of Product Innovation, is hosting a Reddit Ask Me Anything event from noon until 2.30 p.m. Eastern. All are welcome to stop by and ask their questions about markets and investing. Head to the Fidelity Canada subreddit to participate. That's reddit.com slash r slash Fidelity Canada. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Great to see you, Matt. How are you? You too, Pamela. Really good to see you. Matt, let's begin with the discussions of what everyone wants to know about what Jay Powell may or may not say in his comments tomorrow at the Jackson Hole Summit. What ultimately are you sort of gleaning? What might you expect? What are what are sort of the possibilities? Yeah, this is an important week for financial markets and for my sector in, in particular. So, you know, let's start with a bit of perspective here. So, you know, obviously this year, in terms of Fed rate hike, has been the, the fastest rate of hikes since the 1980s. So if we go back a couple of months, I think this is important to sort of lay out the, the, the setup here. Yeah, around June, July, the market was kind of getting worried about, you know, whether economic wobbles might mean that maybe some of Jay Powell's comments interpreted a little bit more dovishly. So maybe we're closer to the end of a hiking cycle than something that's perhaps more prolonged. And, and, and kind of with that, you know, people were kind of thinking, well, maybe we get a, you know, a rate cut in 2023. That was kind of that thinking. So over the summer, we've had kind of various Fed officials come out and sort of push back on that, talk, take a bit more kind of hawkish uh, tone. And we've seen you know, that the market respond as well. So the US 10 year back above 3%. Yeah. And you know, that initial kind of rally of tech names in through July kind of stalled a little bit here. So when we think about you know, where we are right now, kind of Powell's kind of got three, three sort of options, as I see it. The first choice is to kind of double down on, on what his colleagues have said, lean hawkishly. That would be seen, I think, as bad for, for markets. Uh, it, it suggests that the Fed is, is going to push harder to kill inflation and maybe a view that inflation stickier. The second kind of option is to perhaps lean against his peers and say, well, you know, become a little bit more softer in the approach, a little more dovish, right? And that's kind of will be a reflection of what we've seen over the summer. We'll, we'll see. But there's also a third option. And that I would sort of characterize as kind of like a punt. It kind of punts it. And, and, and that would kind of be around a conversation around data dependency. So, you know, we'll kind of, we'll see how things go essentially. And that's probably the path of, of least resistance, not to get into predictions so close to the event, but that's probably the path of at least of least resistance. And given the Fed has done a pretty good job kind of shepherding markets in, in recent weeks, 
And if we kind of zoom out, you know, at a very high level, a longer term perspective, we're really in unprecedented times when it comes to monetary policy. Or we've had QE, we were talking about QT, we've had the financialization of, of new asset classes, negative real rates. These are very, you know, these are pretty recent phenomena. And so, you know, given all of that, you know, the transmission mechanisms and the playbooks are, are less clear than perhaps, you know, history can tell us. And, and so, you know, the, the way that the economy will respond to changes in rates is, is not obvious and particularly around the transmission mechanism there. So maybe approach of, you know, really kind of driving slow through fog, that kind of analogy is the way it might go. And, and maybe with Powell, you know, to people up under is still close to all time highs. Unemployment in the US is still low at 3.6%. You've still got a, a nice degree of kind of air cover for Powell if, if, if he chooses to take it. We'll, we'll see what happens. That's fascinating. And as you get those different perspectives, and it makes me want to ask, you know, what's the reaction to each of those three possibilities? Maybe we'll we'll drill down into that. But you cover U.S. financials. Let, let's talk a little bit about sort of the obvious discussion of financials in a rising rate environment is that, you know, banks make more money. So that, that was going to be helpful. There are a lot of other pieces in there that fit with the overall economic outlook. So where do U.S. financials stand, given what you've just said? Absolutely right. Typically, people think about higher interest rates being very good for banks within financials. Typically, you know, a bank will earn revenue on a mortgage rate or on a credit card, right? That, that higher that rate can become, the, the, the bigger the opportunity to make a spread when we think about the cost of that really being the deposits or the savings rates. So, and, and as rates rise, typically that what we call the net interest margin expands, and that's good for banks. But there's a piece of this cycle where you have a, an, the yield curve starts to invert, and that's where the short-term rates are the same or above long-term rates. And so banks are, in simple terms, not making money from a loan originated at that point. Right. So when, when that happened, the focus of the market, investors like myself, was really about credit risk. So it's saying, OK, so interest rates are rising. How far can they rise before that becomes a sticking point for businesses and consumers? When do you start to see the credit cost on the other side of that tailwind of rates overwhelming that dynamic? And so typically, you know, what you normally see is banks rally, you know, hard as, as rates rise. And then at some point, they will start to perform well when rates start to cut, but when the rates start to come down. So we actually saw that in July. So during the July kind of dovish tilt or the pivot that some people would talk about with, with Powell, banks outperformed the S&P 500 during that period. Right? And, that, and that was all about a, a view that a soft landing was, was much more likely if they step off the, the rate pedal. Right. So that, that's the point. And so for, for banks in particular, you really want to own banks when the rate cycle has peaked and, and we're kind of very early in a recession and all that bad news has been priced in. And that's typically the, the bicycle starts to flash. And, and we, we are there in many cases. But the fly in the ointment from my end is that you know, this has been a very, very uh, well anticipated downturn. Everyone is pretty bearish. I would say in general, you know, we've not yet seen that replication of valuations of all these banks. You mean you mean an actual downturn slash recession has not actually been okay. It's this weird dichotomy where you have this anticipation for a slowdown, but the banks are not yet pricing that in fully. And I think that's where you're kind of trying to pick your spots on the risk reward. So the playbook would say now is the kind of time you own financials. The sticking point is that on valuation, to my mind. Okay, so I want to pick up on valuation just one second, but let's just go to exactly what you're talking about, sort of where where the rate cycle peaks, because this is where you've had the army of Fed officials out, out over the last couple of weeks trying to trying to walk back or whatever you want to call it. Ultimately, we've got Esther George saying, yeah, it could be four or five percent in terms of interest rates where they I mean, you know, there's sort of these things being thrown out where it, it looks like we're pretty far off. So how, how does that piece 
play into either the uncertainty or just sort of, again, where U.S. financials find themselves? Yeah, absolutely. This is a debate I have every day. I mean, the, 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 really the point there is, is about, I, I think about it as, as real rates. So that is the, the, the nominal rate of inflation we see on the screen minus the inflation. As we all know, inflation is high at the moment, but that is trending lower. And it, and it should trend lower over time as you have these base effects, right? You're just you're analyzing off a, off a higher base. So that should come down and, and help provide a, a tailwind for lower inflation. And in theory, help ease the pressure on the Fed to, to raise rates you know, more rapidly. The challenge is, and history would tell us that the Fed don't typically raise rates in a period where data is getting is getting worse or inflation's improving. We're in that kind of environment, so it's a strange one where you're having this this inflation rate well above well above trend, two percent targets as well, but the data is getting uh, is getting worse. So that's that's interesting. Now, where I come back to the real rate is how I would think about the long term rate is to say, okay, what what should a real rate be, and then add on um, some some inflation number that I think is steady state. So if we believe in 2% or slightly above 2% for the US 10-year over a long period of time, and you believe in a sort of zero to positive, let's say 0.5% real rate, the demographics of the US would, would support that kind of thinking and the productivity gains and that sort of thing. And you're really in a, a realm of kind of 25 to 3% on, on a kind of long-term you know, US 10-year. And we're sort of, we're in and about that now. So when people talk about 4 or 5%, to my mind, it, it implies if you anchor off a real rate that's around about zero, it implies we're in a structurally higher inflation environment of, of three to four percent or even more. And so to me, I'm not quite in that camp. That's just not where I'm at. But, you know, when we think about the range of outcomes, I think that's that's how I think about it. Very interesting. So let's go back to the valuation discussion. We saw. Well, I mean, we all know that we saw through the rally in the summer, we saw a retracement of what had been lost through the early months of the year and financials. As well, I mean, well, financials are are financials cheap at this point. I mean, what would what, what would you say about valuations based on what happened yeah. through the summer? I think one of the, one of the challenges there. And I'm a portfolio manager on our ESG strategy as well, so I look at you know non financials as well, and it gives me a perspective how to compare between the two. And because of the impact of rates rising so rapidly, you've really seen that that crunch, on, as everyone will know, on the technology names, the growth names. And so what you're having here is this interesting time where. You know, I've described it as kind of teener, I think, on a previous call here, where you see there is no alternative within financials, right? Financials at least have had a tailwind of rates. And you can make the case that the economic environment has been pretty good and still is pretty good. So you can make those, those arguments. The question, the way I think about it now is on, on relative value, the relative valuation. That, to me, is the most important part of, of, of where I'm thinking about it right now. So, you know, the, the U.S. banks have, have held up fairly well this year and, and in the last 12 months because they've had tailwinds from rates. The environment, economic environments are supportive at the very least. And you've had that, that, that headwind to high growth tech because of rates. Now you get to a point now where we're all just trying to call. This is why Jackson Hole is so important. When do we peak out on rates? And perhaps we can get a little bit more constructive on some of these growth names to say, no, the discount rate has peaked. And maybe over, over a cycle, over the long term, you start to get a tailwind back again to some of these multiples on, on high growth, or at least you're more relaxed about the multiples and these companies can kind of grow into their earnings. And that's when you start to see these leadership changes within the market. And that's, that's why Jackson Hole is so important, why the, the, the rate hiking cycle is so important. So I'm starting to see value in some of the technology names relative to financials, which have generally held up fairly well and, and generally, I think, look good, but relative to other things, you know, there are other areas of the market as well that look interesting. Fair okay, interesting. Well, what about sort of that Tina discussion, but on a more global basis? So, I mean, you've got U.S. financials. You discussed sort of where they are ultimately in sort of a cyclical story, but also 
based on you know where where you've seen some some valuation changes or something that would or wouldn't look attractive. It sort of depends on how you want to look at it, your time horizon. But globally, we can't really not talk about the US dollar, which is also tied to Jackson Hole and the discussion of interest rates, of course. But here you have US equities being a discussion just in amongst themselves because of the dollar. I mean, how much of that comes into the overall story for you? I think, you know, I, I don't sort of try and forecast the dollar specifically. I see it more of as an output. And yeah. unless we kind of you know, take it from that level. At the moment, the US looks like a huge bastion of strength. We don't need to get into the detail on China and, and obviously the tragic situation in, in Ukraine and Russia. But, you know, when, you, when something that Jamie Dimon, the CEO J.P. Morgan, talks about is the benefits of the geographic location of the US, the friendliness of the neighbors, obviously including Canada, right? That we, we often say that for granted in various cycles. But, you know, unfortunately, well, we're in a situation now where that has that is clearly a very strong tailwind, and and on a relative basis, relative to other opportunities, both financials globally, and and I talk about you know Europe, we get into that. It, the U.S. looks you know, very attractive, and, and even if we look through the, the immediate term setup, you know, over time, there's still a demographic tailwind, there's still a you know, opportunity for population growth, it's still a center of innovation. Those things are, are, are really important, and, and and as my colleagues remind me too, from the PMs and the team. Economic growth is the core driver of bank profitability. And so for, you, for the U.S. financials in particular, um, that is one piece of it. And economic growth is a kind of a, a way to grease a lot of the issues and smooth over a lot of the wrinkles that you have over time. So you, you always want to be in, in geographies where economic growth is constructive. And the U.S. certainly has that. When it comes to kind of the credit piece, and that is an, obviously a very important part of the story, and it's, it's um, gathering lots of attention today. The, and I sort of mentioned it slightly earlier on. The, the U.S. banking system is, is positioned for a mild recession. People have taken or banks have taken allowances for credit losses in line with a sort of mild downturn. Now, obviously, things can be worse than that. We'll, we'll find out in not too long. But, you know, at the moment, the, the credit risk profile, the, the least the allowance risk profile is, is there. And so the earnings basis of banks generally reflect a mild recession, which is generally a good thing. You want to have banks anticipating the, the, the challenges ahead. That's probably the setup there. And, and, and so that is generally constructive. It's generally constructive. Interesting. You know, I, let's take it just because you also cover the asset managers. Why, why don't you just take it in that direction a little bit, noting that obviously Fidelity is an asset manager, but we're talking about the publicly traded. You know, how, how are they looking right now in terms of valuation? Let's go back to that. It's a tough one with, with, with asset managers, as we all know, right? And same with the advisor business, the, the, the revenue line moves around with markets. And so you're kind of constantly trying to second guess where markets sit over time. I would say in, in general terms, you know, what matters for, for, for asset managers and, in, in, and advisor, as advisory firms, the valuation really links the organic growth number. It's whether you are positive or you're negative and at a different points of the cycle, you're more likely to be negative or positive. At this point, just given we've seen some slowdown, we've seen things like flows and so net flows, which is generally the, the proxy for organic growth, have, have been softer. And I think, you know, we all we all see that as clients are a little bit more uncertain as to how to think about asset allocations and things like that. And that generally, you know, that generally puts pressure on the valuation of asset managers. And so if you take, you know, if you believe over time that markets normalize and, and the environment can get better over time, then organic flows should follow that. And with that, you know, today you're, you're seeing the market reflecting asset management valuations in a very poor light. Uh, you're, you're seeing asset managers kind of trade down on multiples because as people extrapolate today's, you know, some of the softness in flows into perpetuity and then apply a multiple. But if you believe over time that the environment can be constructive and demographics becomes very important there, then valuations could rise. So if you think about the cyclical setup for asset managers uh, on valuation specifically, 
it also looks quite quite constructive. But you do need to see a market environment more favorable than today to really realize that upside. Fascinating. And I, you know, I feel like there's there's more to come back in here, but I wanted to ask you because when we spoke earlier, you mentioned that you went to a panel, like a, a conference, uh, I think at Cornell, talking about ESG. And you know, we've seen we've seen the Congress bill come through. We've seen things move a little bit on this front. It, it has to do with the overall way that companies conduct themselves and how investors ultimately want to or not don't want to invest in them. What is sort of the temperature of ESG from from either that and, and other ways that you look at it? You certainly keep close tabs on, on the ESG story. Yeah, no, it was a super interesting. So I got invited to speak at a panel with a couple of uh, peers of mine, our asset management peers, uh, portfolio managers about ESG. And you know the discussion point was was pretty varied, but you know we come at a point where th- this conference was a combination of of practitioners like myself and also the the academic researchers looking at the space. It's very interesting to come together and compare notes and see where the market's different, where the regulations different, all those different pieces. But I think what what you picked up on there is the there's an element of, there's an elevated level of scrutiny. I think we saw that early mm-hmm. in the summer. There was a real wave where it became kind of almost fashionable to bash certain elements of the ESG topic and and industry participants and. You know, I think there's it was almost a competition that you can make the most noise on that. And and I understand, you know, when oil prices And we did see high. a sell-off, right? I mean, we did see a sell-off of a lot of the names that that would be beneficiaries and so on of sort of the ESG story, certainly on the energy front. Completely, absolutely. And and rates are obviously one part of that, but still there yeah. was an element of a bubbling nature in some of these some of these more, you know, go-to names, certainly. And I think, you know, what's happened is oil prices have gone the other way, which has emboldened that debate further, which is which is fair enough. And I think you're also seeing that the regulators are catching up with what's going on. There's, there's been an immense period of growth. And, and naturally, when you have U.S. regulators involved, it tends to get a little bit more political. And I think that's where we are now. But, in, it's, but if we kind of look at the long-term picture, I think this is a healthy kind of recalibration. I think what we're all realizing at various times is that ESG is a deeply personal topic. And mutual funds and ETF providers for decades have offered clients the benefit of pooled vehicles. And ESG challenges some, some of that, right? You want to become more personalized. And I think for, for asset managers, as us as asset managers, it's important we protect client choice, offering solutions that kind of go across the piece and not dictating what clients should believe in, but being very you know, crystal clear on our philosophy. What do we actually believe in as this fund or this PM? Crystal clear on the process and, and then being robust and delivering that time and again. And I think, I think when I look at, you know, as a PM covering this space in the ESG area, I get more questions from clients about the sustainability credentials of the stocks that we own in the fund than I do about the actual fundamentals of the business. And I think that's a real change. And I welcome that because we need to challenge ourselves and our thinking on all these items. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's so interesting watching it, as you say, it's sort of picking up steam and, and maybe a, a new on a new footing, perhaps. It's very interesting to watch. Going back to financials, a discussion within the tech sell-off that we saw again through the early part of this year. FinTech obviously is part of that. How does the FinTech companies fit in with the more traditional financial companies that you take a look at? Is is there a period of you know acquiring the FinTechs, for instance, that we're on the verge of? What, what does that landscape look like? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting dynamic, and it's evolving as quickly as the market is. So. Yeah, right now, fintechs have not really been present in the core lending or deposit gathering business of banks, despite this huge wave of investment we've seen in recent years. It had been mostly present in fee line items, things like brokerage, mortgage, involved in payments, right? But on the deposit gathering side specifically, 
regulation provides a very important and powerful umbrella for banks in the space. It's the same thing in Canada, obviously. And I think people really do value that FDIC insurance against their deposits. But what, we, what we've seen with fintechs is historically they, they perform well on deposit gathering when there was an element of, of rates where they could offer an attractive rates on deposits to bring in those flows. We've not seen that for, for a long period of time. Now, it's coming back a little bit now, but the difference is these higher rates are coming with a pressure on fintech, on growth stocks to become profitable. Right? The higher rates mean a higher opportunity cost of ownership for, for investors, and it's, it's hurting fintech valuations. And so what you're seeing this interesting setup where the rates are there. So maybe you would traditionally think fintechs could you know, offer a bit of a carrot to, to new investors in a deposit you know, gathering business. But there's the other side is the pressure to, be pro- to become profitable. Uh, and then that's, that's, that's a real issue. The other side of it is the, the combination of, of stock-based compensation. I'm sure the, the, the viewers will have heard little bits about this, but many of the fintechs have attracted employees through their private market years with stock and then crystallize that value upon IPO, right? And so what we're seeing now is many of these stock-based payments are maybe 50% of revenues for many of these businesses in dollar terms. So it's very onerous for a fintech to become profitable and support those kind of those kind of payments, uh, and so that's a, that's a, another issue to challenge. And what we're seeing in the market now is firms, not to pick on certain names, this is more of a, a trend than than anything else. But names like a, a Robinhood or, or a Rocket Mortgage cutting employees by about thirty percent to try and bring this profit this this route to profitability. And so I think to your question about the, about the fintechs and, and, and acquisitions, the next the next question is really: Are we going to see traditional firms acquiring fintechs? I think there's obvious complexity there in terms of the cultural fit and how you deal with employer retention when you have this stock-based issue that I just referred to at, at right. spot valuations. And there's an issue for, for banks and larger financial firms deploying a large amount of capital at this point in the cycle, a late point in the cycle. I, I think to me, it seems unlikely we'll see that just because uh, there's not the appetite for banks and, and boards to to lean into that. And frankly, on a on a different level, I'm not sure banks want to be bailing out or giving a writing a big check to these peers that have been eating their lunch for, for for many years or at least trying to fascinating it's so interesting just to to look at that and, and as you say how how they cross over line up and, and and perhaps culturally don't fit i mean that that is also a big piece of, of anything on that front so what would you like to kind of leave everyone joining us here today with on on the u.s financials front also the asset managers what kind of mo- this is a strange moment for markets writ large <laughs> across the world right now energy markets financial markets everywhere but what what do you sort of see ultimately as the setup for us financial sort of look down the road say you know 9 to 12 months yeah i'd love to come back in that time and see how how close this gets yeah i, I think in general we are we are waiting for some kind of downturn internally we're, we're looking at the scenario analysis what does a bad recession look like? What does a good, what does a mild recession look like? Where are the financials within that kind of range of outcomes? And how how excited and when should we lean into these things? It's very much a question of when do you buy at this point in the cycle, not when do you kind of ignore and, and, and forget about it for, for five years. That's that's not the way it is set up right now. Now the Fed's going to dictate that in the short term, but over the longer term, taking a more you know global or a higher level view, you know, there's there's opportunities for growth even within financials. It's not all kind of the same. It's not homogenous across the sector. You're always going to get, you know, a quarter or two where a particular bank, you know, let's say blows up on a particular credit. And that gives us opportunity to say, okay, we've been tracking this bank for 10 years. We know their credit quality has been excellent. 
we can lean into this now. This is an opportunity. And that's the kind of thing that I'm looking for over the next nine to 12 months. And, and Jackson Hole is the first part of, of shaking out some of the tree, perhaps on maybe some of those ideas. And Ryan Reynolds, Canadians love to talk about the comedians that come from this country. I'm sure it's all connected to how cold it is, but he has a connection actually to you. It's something I was going to watch on Netflix over the weekend. Tell us a little bit about that. There is indeed, there is indeed. So uh, I'm from a, I was born in a town called Wrexham, which I'm sure no one visited and I politely say that I wouldn't rush to. You know, Ryan Meadows is actually, and, and Rob McElhenney is actually from the US, I don't remember the name of the, of the, of the show now, but they've acquired this football club in Wrexham. And so Ryan's- uh, in, in, Wales. In, in Wales, in Wales, yeah. In, in Wales, exactly. And so the, net, the, the documentary is on, I think, Disney Plus. I'm not trying to pitch it because I'm doing some marketing work for him, but it's certainly going to be interesting. I'll be watching to see how, uh, how they get on. And it's very much a local uh, industrial town Kind of trying to trying to grow and 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 really conquer the world. So it's a great story, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing how that evolves. But that's a little pitch for the weekend. That's fantastic. It's also a pitch for Disney Plus. Maybe don't cut your subscription just yet. Yeah, yeah. Lots of good stuff on there. Lots of Marvel things. Okay. Thanks for joining us, Matt Egerton, and uh, really a pleasure to get some of your thoughts on Jackson Hole, but also ultimately on what this all means for U.S. financials. We look forward to seeing you again soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.